Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to hear from Flea and Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We're also going to hear new music from Brandy Clark. And we're going to talk about great bands that started out with terrible band names. Now we're going to do our What We're Listening To segment. I'm here with John Dolan, Record Reviews Editor. What's up, John? Hey, Nathan. You've been listening to the Brandy Clark record, a little bit of country music. I have been. This has been a fantastic year for groundbreaking country records. There is the Sturgill Simpson record. There is this new record by Marin Morris um, called Hero. And now there's this, uh, Brandy Clark, it's called Big Day in a Small Town. She debuted a couple years ago with a record called 14 Stories with song titles. Some of the song titles were uh, songs like Hungover, Take a Little Pill, The Day She Got Divorced, Illegitimate Children. So you can kind of see where she's coming from. A kinda little hard, darker than a little darker, like bro kinda, country that's out there. Exactly. Right. Kind of hard scrabble, taking Loretta Lynn to the nth degree kind of stuff with small, with those kind of that kind of storytelling. She's buddies with... Uh, Casey Musgraves, they've written together. Um, Along with Shane McAnally, yeah, who, who's a big songwriter. I mean, it's inter- one thing that's happening now in Nashville that I feel like I'm, I'm seeing more as an outsider is just that more songwriters are getting big as artists, which is not always the way it goes. Like Chris Stapleton was a songwriter before he, he made it very big last year. He was probably the biggest country artist last year. And now Brandy Clark seems to have like be having a real breakthrough as an artist. Yeah, and what makes this record great is the way it kind of sticks to traditional kind of country storytelling and themes but it's she likes gravelly guitars it's catchy the, right. the rhythms are, are great it's right. it's not like she, it's not a rejection of the kind of pop side of Nashville right. that you'd get from like Taylor Swift or whatever it's or in the old days you know it's, it's, or the, it's and this is definitely not like alternative country no. you know it's not like the drive by truckers or something this is this is like working within the Nashville system but like kind of pushing it in different directions. Yeah, and I think that's been the big, like you say, the big difference is there was this sense that if you're going to be serious, you have to be austere. And this is, you know, the Sturgill Simpson record has got soul music on it, and it's an epic production. And this record has thick kind of catchy beats and like kind of fun guitars, and the, and the melodies are catchy, and its courses are catchy, but they deal with some of the deepest, most essential kind of subject matter that country has been talking about, you know, obviously for almost a century. It's, it's a record of small-town vignettes. Um, well, what are the songs that you've been uh, listening to? Well, the title track is this song. It's uh, called Big Day in a Small Town. Oh, it's a big day in a small town There ain't no It's this kind of series of tragic comic small town grotesques, I guess. There's a guy drives to see his buddy's football game while he's drinking, and he crashes his pickup and flips it over just as the kid, his buddy, scores a touchdown. There's a line, somebody went to Walmart, nothing but a nightgown. There's stuff like that. It's just kind of like when you drive through a small town, and you kind of think there's nothing going on here, but all the little stories inside it, kind of an almost like a... Sinclair Lewis or Sherwood Anderson kind of sense. And then there's another one called Homecoming Queen about kind of when you, you know, I don't know, you're, running, you're on Facebook and run into somebody and you're like, oh, wow, what happened to them? Ten years later, they look pretty rough. 28 shouldn't look this old, but the last 10 years sure took their toll on the girl in the picture with the plastic crown Sequin dress wouldn't fit her now. The story behind, you know, you were the homecoming queen. Now, you know, you're staying with your husband because you love him, but it's not easy. You know, your looks are changing. You're kind of try- coming to terms with a new reality. And she gets inside these perspectives in... Um, those are the kind of songs that I feel like are still happening a lot in Nashville that other musics just don't do that well, you know? Well, and definitely in terms of just the, the sort of empathy and 
the intelligence for these things are kind of taken out. It's true. They are stories about the way American life is lived and told in a way that's like direct but also kind of fun. There's a lot of sense of humor in, in these songs. One of them is called Three Kids and a Husband. She lights a cigarette out on the balcony When she gets a couple minutes to herself this one's actually a pretty dark one, but it's kind of like, you know, the life of just someone who she had a lot of talent. She probably had a lot of charisma and smarts, but like, you know, got pregnant, has three kids, husband's gone, works in a diner, like lives in the, the small apartment, goes out on the porch to like have a cigarette and think about it and just kind of like what it's like inside that life. The last song on the record is sung from the perspective of someone talking to their dead dad and kind of saying, boy, you know, I'm glad you're not around to see all the things that are happening wrong with this town and with America in general. But at the same time, if you were around, you could help me kind of figure them out. I hate you had to leave us. Glad you didn't live to see this. The broken pieces of the family you made. It's very moving. And there's some songs on here that if you can get through them without like being a blubbering puddle of, you know, of, 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 of sentiment, you are uh, made of starchier stuff than I am, I guess. It's a really, really moving record. Proceed with caution. Yeah, exactly. All right. All right, well, it's Big Day in a Small Town, and that's out now. The other uh, album you've been listening to a lot lately is the new one from uh, Mitski, another uh, female singer-songwriter. Yeah, basically, I mean, in some ways not dissimilar, like... Definitely this record is called Puberty 2. It's her second album. It is already being kind of championed as the breakout indie rock album of, of the year, I think, along with, I guess, the Car Seat Headrest album. Not and we've talked about one of her songs, Best American Girl, before on the podcast, but this, now the, the whole album is out. The whole album's out this week. So quickly, who is Mitski? Uh, her name is Mitski Miyawaki. She is a songwriter, singer, uh, in living in Brooklyn. But her background is uh, kind of is a she grew up was born in Japan, lived I think in the in the Congo for a while, lived around the world a little bit before her family settled in America. And that kind of sense of in betweenness and identity that's kind of in flux is a big big theme of her songwriting. And it also kind of comes out in the music itself, which kind of skirts a lot of different genres. You can hear bits of, there's, you know, Sharon Von Etten kind of indie rock songwriting. You can hear little bits of like Liz Fair and P.J. Harvey, but you also hear maybe elements of kind of art pop, Kate Bush, um, St. Vincent, uh, Tune Yards. The first song on the record, the rhythm track is just a CD skipping for a little while. And it develops into this real kind of like funky sort of sax solo song that's got a lot of kind of, that's like, uh, it's called Happy. And it kind of gets that, that theme of like, not necessarily having sure footing. record is all these kind of moments throughout that, that, that kind of reflect that. One of the songs she says, I'm the fire, I am the forest. It's like, you know, where do I fit? It's almost like a Heisenbergian problem of kind of <laughs> where you're going to sit in the world. One of the songs is called, as, as you just mentioned, Best American Girl, which is kind of her attempt to, it's a slow, um, kind of My Bloody Valentine guitar. It's kind of a slow indie rock battle that's basically her kind of figuring out how she, you know, she falls in love with someone who's not from the same background and, and she kind of talks about how, you know, your mom might not like the way my mom raised me, but I do. And it's kind of what kind of identity am I going to have as an American? Is it going to be an identity in flux? Is it going to be an identity based on determination where I embrace my own identity? What what kind of person am I going to have to be to experience a kind of pure American desire, which the, the lyrics early on in the song kind of address, this kind of sense of, you know, just unmitigated just enthusiasm and love, but it really runs into this problem of a cultural divide and how do I bridge that? And it's it's a very powerful song. 
And a lot of these songs just have, have a real sweep, too, and then build. Well, the album yeah. itself, you're right, and the album itself is kind of, it's her first record, uh, which came out a couple years ago, was, was good, you know, indie singer-songwriter stuff, like close to kind of a Sharon Van Etten, but this album, it's more shapely, it's more rhythmic, it's more, it go, it, it flows between different styles more more fluidly, uh, it, it it almost feels kind of cyclical, and so it, sort of these themes come out, I mean, it's called Puberty 2, it's about awkward growth, and, and it, you can go from a raging, fast, uh, distorted rock song to a song that might recall for some people uh, Lana Del Rey. It's, it's interesting that you, you are seeing, like, along this, I'm thinking of the car seat headrest record too like both Mitski and car seat headrest are of this generation of indie rockers who broke everything down to this spare 90s lo-fi level both started out at that home recording level and now are like kind of learning how to make albums you know uh and it's it's interesting to see them grow yeah, I, I I really agree, and this is a this is an example where with both of these people, you just wonder that what they could do next and, and where the next chapter of this could go because there's so much possibility and so much talent. And you're right, I do think that kind of like spending a getting to write as much as possible and like I mean she's not quite the same where she's not throwing a tons of songs on the internet, but there is a sense of kind of like getting a lot of that out of your system for making ready for these big leaps. And these records are both big leaps. All right, the Mitski record Puberty Two is out this month. And I encourage people to check it out. That's it for what we're listening to. Thanks for coming on, John. You bet. Thanks, Nathan. And we're back. That was We Turn Red off the new Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Getaway. I'm here with associate editor Andy Green. Hi. What's going on? Not too much. Andy, you just talked to uh, Flea and Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers about their new album. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. You know, it's sort of bizarre, but they've been around for 35 years, which is a shockingly long time for a band that seemed to personify youth for for so long, you know, but they've been working with the same producer since the early 90s, Rick Rubin. Who would have thought when they were putting socks on their penises <laughs> and <laughs> in, yeah. in the early 90s that they would still be here? Yeah, they go 35 years and they survived so many awful things. They lost their founding guitarist and John Fushanti. Hello, Slovak. Yes. And then Fushanti joined and he gave him all this new energy and then he left. Then he came back and did a huge comeback. Then he left again. Right, and, and I think you could argue that their kind of, their golden time, I would say, for my money in yeah. the in the '90s was when John Frusciante was in the group. That's when they did the album with you know uh, Scar Tissue, uh, yeah, Californication. Yeah, in the late '90s when he came back, they had a huge resurgence, and then he left again, and he was a huge part of their sound. And on the last album in 2011, it was decent, but they had this new guitarist, Josh Klinghoffer, that they just hired. And they hadn't quite gelled yet. He had been their touring guitarist for a while, and they kind of made him a full member. Yes. It's like, you get to take your shirt off now. Yeah, basically, yeah. And with this album, they felt it was time for a change. And the biggest change was they dumped Rick Rubin, who had done every record back to Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Right. I mean, that's as you said, for about 25 years. Yeah, that's a really long time. Right. And they decided to bring in Danger Mouse. So Danger Mouse, Brian Burton first uh, gained widespread notoriety after producing uh, Crazy as part of Gnarls Barkley and now has become kind of almost like a Rick Rubin-like figure. He's like the kind of cool 
producer for big yeah, rockers. He's basically seen as the one producer that can get rock bands on the radio. Right. Which he's, is a really hard thing to pull off these days. He produced the last U2 record. Uh, right, right, most of it. Most of it. And the Black Keys record, Beck. He sort of... Give a big boost to the Black Keys. You could argue yeah. like the Black Keys kind of wide success right. was... Right, yeah. He took this sort of blues rock duo, and all of a sudden they have huge radio hits, and they're playing arenas. Right. And it's really thanks to him. So right. the Chili's were smart to try and sort of latch on to his power, but he wanted them to really do things differently. Right. You know, this is a, this is a band used to just jamming together in a studio and writing songs, and Danger Mouse, he's from hip-hop, he wanted them to just write songs in the studio, start with a drum, and just, then just layer on top of it and write with him. Right. It's a huge departure. They also had some, uh, along with the, the big shift away from uh, not using Rick Rubin, which is a big change for them, uh, they also, uh, Flea talked to you about a uh, pretty serious accident that he had right. uh, a few months ago. So yeah, that- they were just about to start making the album about a year and a few months ago, and he was snowboarding, and he fell and he broke his arm. So let, let's hear some of your uh, interview from a few days ago with Flea. First, just tell me the story about breaking your arm while snowboarding. Oh, dude, it was crazy. I was in uh, this, like, fancy ski resort in Montana. I had been snowboarding for three days, like, having the greatest time of my life. And the funny part of the story is this. I was snowboarding, doing versions. Me, me and Anthony, and we ran into Lars Ulrich, who was coming from America up there. Yeah. And, and he had a house up there. So we're snowboarding, you know, we're snowboarding down, Lars' with kids, and me and Anthony, and we're like rocking down the mountains, like hooting and hollering, having the greatest time. And, you know, we have the same managers, that, uh, that Metallica and Chili Peppers have the same managers. Uh-huh. And um, at one point, I like, we stop, we have a cup of tea, whatever. And I said, Lars, we should, we should, like, take a picture of one of us lying in the snow, like, all misshapen and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, like, Pollyanna when she fall off the house, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, take a, a picture and, and trick coupon that one of us broke your leg, you know? Uh-huh. And we're like, oh, 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 laughing about it, you know, and we get back. And then we, like, literally 40 seconds later, I'm, like, jetting down this mountain, going, like, 50 miles an hour, and I just wiped out so bad. It was just kind of a weird thing I couldn't see and I hit this flat spot in the mountain and bam and I just snapped my arm man I broke it in like five places got really bad nerve damage big pieces of bone got shorn off and I just completely fucking thrashed my arm and um and it was a you know big big complicated surgery to get it all back right but in six months of uh, not being able to play bass. And wow, so did they, li- that would, did they life flight you to a hospital, or, or what happened? <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, they just, like, stuck a jar of Vicodin down my throat. And, um, and you know, yeah, no, I was, like, I was, like, I was like, on a morphine drip in an ambulance, went to the hospital in Montana, and I went back to L.A. to have the surgery done. It just, man, it was hard. It was, like... You know, it yeah. was a very difficult, painful, sad experience. And this was how long ago did did this happen? This was like, it happened in February of last year. Okay. So, so yeah, and so, and, 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 you know, we were just about to go record our record then. Right. And I never, and everybody told me that I was so bummed and, and it just kind of dawned on me that, we, you know, that I was, you know, I felt like I let everybody down. We couldn't go record our record. We had written all this stuff. And, you know, man, I was just really, really sad. And, and I just went to a long rehab process. And, 
you know, luckily I had a really great surgeon, and um, I got better, and now, you know, I'm totally back on top. Yeah, you know, I think the key part of why you guys have lasted is you and Anthony are so close that you spend your free time together. You know, there's so many bands at this point where the members just hate each other, and, and it corrodes everything. It corrodes the music and the concerts, but you guys have managed to really stay tight. Yeah, well, you know, we've gone through our phases. It's, it's you know, I mean, we definitely, like, I love that guy. Right. I, mean, I love him. I'm in love with him. I love him. He's my fucking soulmate. You know, what can I say, you know? Uh-huh. And I... Like our relationship is some kind of weird psychological study, if I think about it, like how it's almost like a north and a south magnet that they kind of repel each other, but they have to be together to, for the earth to live, kind of vibe, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. So like, you know, it's kind of like our relationship is a, is a trip, you know, but we just have always, you know, like in the before, even the before the band, it was always just like this real powerful thing when we were together and just always would like, just start mixing shit up and creating chaos and freaking out the squares, you know. It's kind of how it's always been. But, uh, but I, you know, I, I was thinking earlier today, because I was, you know, I've been doing interviews all day. Someone asked me kind of a, a similar question, and, and you know, and I, and I was thinking about, like, you know, different, because there have been times when we, like, would sulk and be mad and not talk to each other and fucking, you know, be better feelings hurt by each other. And, and I think, like, you know, it's like in the beginning when we were young, we really needed each other, you know? It was like we both were just kind of street kids, and we were on the street, we became best friends, and we spent all the time together, and we kind of, like, you know, we relied on each other to be there for each other. But then, like, you know, around the time Blood Sugar came out, and we first, like, you know, we got a million dollars and a nice house and a car and all the shit, you know, a washer and a dryer and a fancy rug. You know, it's like all of a sudden it's like our lives became really separate. You know, we weren't like living in a little apartment together anymore. And we had different different sets of friends and different, you know what I mean? Like yeah. things got different. And, 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 and there was a lot of, you know, we'd have a lot of like anger and, and judgment on, in our friendship. It was really difficult. Uh, like, I just feel like, it's like now we're just in this place where it's just like, we, we know there's like, the whole thing is just so much nicer when we can just, like, be relaxed and happy and supportive of each other and even be supportive of each other when we don't agree, which has taken us a long time to learn how to do, you know? And that was Flea. It's true, like, the core of the band is definitely, like, his friendship with Anthony uh, Kiedis. But you also talked to Chad Smith. Yes. Who's kind of become this figure in his own right. You kind of had a funny exchange about how he's become kind of a, a duo with Will Ferrell. Right. I talked to him maybe four years ago. I brought up Will Ferrell. And he's like, yeah, I'm aware that we look alike. I have met him once, but that's about it. But since then, they've realized they look so much alike. Since then, it's become a whole thing yeah, on the they, Jimmy Fallon yeah, show with drum-offs. Yeah, they first went on Fallon. They did this awesome drum-off where they dressed alike. And then they've been doing these charity things where they do drum-offs with huge all-star people that come in. And Chad is a naturally really goofy, funny guy, and Will Ferrell is Will Ferrell. It's a, a very unlikely comedy duo that the two of them have formed, which is just a very odd side project for the drummer and the Chili's to be doing a whole comedy thing. All right, well, let's hear a little bit of Chad talking about this. I spoke to you maybe three or four years ago. At the time, you told me that you barely knew Will Ferrell, and, and now the two of you are like this new comedy duo. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if we're going to be making Step Brothers 2 or 3 or whatever it is. <laughs> time soon, but, you know, who knew that people would get to go, go so crazy because two guys kind of look like each other, and 
did some kind of kooky drum off on television and and it turned into this big thing and and so we were like god why don't we just you know let's let's do some good with this you know and <laughs> and uh we did this event at, at the shrine recently and and raised a bunch of money for two great causes and you know he got his his comedic pals to show up and i brought in the music and the drummers and it was really fun, man. It went really well. It was about as good as it can go, I think. And um, he's, you know, he's he's amazing. And, and uh, you know, I still lost the drum off again. I, I, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like the Washington General drum off. Never gonna win, no matter what. He brought Mick Fleetwood in the freaking USC marching band. I'm not fair yeah yeah ah. that's deeply unfair yeah yeah Bullshit. so um yeah i had Stuart copeland and tommy lee taylor from the food i had a good team yeah he had like a kid and fred armerson who can play is great but you know and then he brought in the ringer and it was all over yeah but now we, we we had a great time with it everybody was 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 happy to be there and it was a good energy and um I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, God, that was just so fun. I didn't know what to expect. And, right. you know, Devo came. It was great. Yeah, it was a good night. So, we're, who knows? We may do it again. I mean, I was... Yeah. And, and again, just great to be able... Just because a couple guys like sort of look like each other, you know, we can raise, you know, millions of dollars. It's great. It's great. And that was Chad Smith. So, what do you think is going to happen with this record? Like, it's kind of... A, the Chili Peppers are in an interesting place because, I mean, they, they are a band, as you said before, you know, that's... Yeah kind of a little bit like the stones but even more so or like always been about just like you know energy and like you right. know, rock and roll and slap bass and taking your shirt off and like how how does a band like that get older well i think for any rock band in 2016 you're fighting gravity there's no rock radio there's not a huge infrastructure that supports rock anymore and particularly for a band that's been around for as i said for a third of a century you know, it's very easy to tour and play your hits, but actually to get momentum on new songs. I mean, you could say that you're fighting gravity, but it's, I, I would argue that it's like a lot of these bands are still playing in arenas. I mean, no, you're not, you're not fighting gravity. In the, you're fighting gravity in the traditional no. record company sense that you're not going to get played on, or like right. going to have a hit, but you yeah. can still play the Barclays Center. Oh, sure. You can play the Barclays Center and be an oldies act, but you're fighting gravity and you try and move forward and really have something that you do new that makes a big impact. The thing is, it's tricky because even a new band like Vampire Weekend like right. isn't getting much radio play per right. se, but then they'll play an arena. Yeah, true, but they're the exception perhaps, and they I'm can't questioning play your negativism. Well, I can Vampire Weekend play arenas outside of Brooklyn. No, they're a theater. Act. Well, that's the question. Yeah, we'll see uh, in our episode yeah. about the next Vampire yeah. Weekend album. This uh, well. But the core of the group is still Flea and Anthony. It's been that way since they were in high school. Right. And they've been through five drummers, five guitarists or something, you know, but it's still the two of them and they're still very tight, which is sort of rare. If you usually have like a Joe Perry and Steven Tyler or a Mick and Keith, there's always a lot of problems. Right. You know, it's just two people. It's hard to accept that you need somebody else to do what you do and they always learn to sort of hate each other. But the two of them, you know, Flea told me they've had some rough spots, but they were they remained very, very close. And when Flea broke his arm, he was with Anthony Kiedis. Right. You know, they hang together when they're not recording or on tour. 
All right. Well, you know, we'll see what happens. I think it's it's a very strong record the fans are going to enjoy. I think Danger Mouse has brought a ton of just fresh ideas. And I, I think it's their best record since Stadium Arcadium. It felt like it, it was definitely a time when the band needed to change things up. And we'll see how people respond. And, you know, it, it's truly, yeah, I, I don't see them, you know, having maybe a, a breakthrough hit at this point in their career. But I think if they make a record that just like their core fans enjoy, it'll be good for them. Right. Yeah. I think that is sort of the best case scenario these days. When a band like U2 tries to get a huge radio hit or whatever, it can backfire then because they failed to do that. But the hardcore fans, they feel that they sold out and sort of you don't win. If you play to your strengths and your fans, you can often do better, I think. All right, well, we're going to move on from the Chili Peppers now into our reader mail section. Andy, you're going to stick around, and we're going to talk about some of the mail we've gotten for a feature we actually did like a year ago, which I quite enjoyed, but people are still uh, commenting on on RollingStone.com. This was a feature on terrible original band names from uh, famous bands. Andy, do you want to take us through some of the the highlights of, of this? Uh, yeah, uh, the the worst names ever. By, yeah, sh- yeah, sure. From bands that became famous. I mean, Simon and Garfunkel were Tom and Jerry because they didn't want to sound Jewish. But maybe going after a cartoon cat and mouse wasn't the best well, idea either. Well, that actually <laughs> that actually you know that that brings to mind a letter from a reader. He, this is a, a comment from somebody named with a username the Mick. Mm-hmm. Actually, the final names in many cases aren't much worse or better than the original names. For example, why is Tom and Jerry one of the worst original names of a band, and why worse than Simon and Garfunkel? Well, I can defend this. I think when you hear Tom and Jerry, you have, your first image is a cartoon cat and mouse. It is not of, of like gentle folk songs. It's just they took pre-established names of a different duo, right? And it was a dumb idea. And and I'm sure that they acknowledge that. It sounds we're, like it could be like a novelty band or yeah, something. Yeah, when right. it's really serious, great music. We're Simon and Garfunkel, you know, that's a mouthful, but those are their names. It's authentic. You know, the time that when Bob Dylan was not Robert Zimmerman, they decided to stand firm by their actual names. And I think that's admirable. Where Tom and Jerry is stupid. I hear you. I hear you. What were some of your uh, personal least favorite well, names on this list? Pearl Jam were first Mookie Blaylock, the name of a NBA player at the time. Right. And not only is it a stupid name for a band, it's a guy's actual name who was going to sue them probably. So it was just pretty stupid. Uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony were the Band-Aid boys. Yeah. Which I don't really yeah, yeah, that's see. horrible. Yeah. And the Beach Boys, they were the Pendletons. Right, the shirts they wore, and they didn't even name themselves the Beach Boys. It was just—it was a name that was just given to them by their first label. Like a Pendleton is like a plaid shirt, right? So, like, Which think about how like the course of history would have been changed. They would have been doing songs like in the, about the woods of Canada, right? And maybe <laughs> yeah. you know, or um, living in an alternate universe. Whereas Beach Boys is a name that they haven't loved historically through the years either. And in the seventies, Brian was talking about changing the name of the band to Beach. Because they weren't boys anymore, but then Mike Love is like, "Are you kidding me? No, you know it's, it's the Beach Boys forever." I personally, I like uh, Radiohead's original name, which was "On a Friday," which I, I just yeah. you just can't see people like losing their heads in Madison Square Garden to like kind of the the awesome pseudo psychedelic songs by On a Friday. No, it's no, just, it was was definitely smart to change it to just like Radiohead. And the Cure were called the Obelisk. <laughs> yeah, no, that's no good. Which kind of has like a 2001 kind of like uh, feel to it. And the worst right. Creed's original name was Naked Toddler, which is a shockingly bad name. <laughs> <laughs> it implies so many 
things that you that shouldn't be implied with a band name. <laughs> <laughs> Although you know they're probably graded on a curve because they are Creed. Yes. You know, so yes, they're a crappy band that we all hate, but they, right. they, you shouldn't be called Naked Toddler. All right, let's read a couple letters. Um, all right. This is from a reader named James Hyken. How about the Warlocks, who changed their name by randomly opening a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary and pointing to an entry, Grateful Dead, a literary motif where a corpse is rescued from desecration by a good Samaritan who later receives assistance from a stranger, the spirit of the Grateful Dead. How about them? Yeah. That's... But the Warlocks is a pretty good name to start yes, with. I think right. they just, didn't they have a, um, a copyright issue or something because there were a UK band called the Warlocks? There might have been an issue. Sounds right. Not That's copyright, often a problem. Just, it was yeah. something that they had to deal with. Right. But the Warlocks is not a terrible name, so I don't think they deserve to be on this list. All right. Uh, okay, this is just kind of a more random comment from a user named Rob. I think we can all agree that the Partridge family <laughs> is the best band name of all time. Well, I don't agree with that, Rob. And <laughs> I question the Partridge family are a band, even. I mean, I guess so. If the Monkees are a band, I, I think love, the Partridge family get in if the Monkees are a I band. I guess David Casty sang the songs, but it's not like Danny Bonanducci was actually playing bass or anything, you know. But Okay, and this is from a uh, user named Stony P-Slap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Soft White Underbelly was first formed at the House on a Hill after a Country Joe and the Fish concert at SUNY Stony Brook in 1967. So Soft White Underbelly became, he's referring to... It's Blue Oyster Cult. You know, Blue Oyster Cult is no great shakes either, I'll have to say, but... That's better uh, than Soft White Underbelly. You know, again, in that alternate universe, maybe we, we would have just gotten used to Soft White Underbelly. And, right. and we would be laughing about this, all, you know, this world where right. they were named Blue Oyster Cult, but which is, come on... You but know. don't for the Reaper or Blue Oyster Cult. It's sort of all satanic it, a little bit. Isn't it just like what it. we're used to, maybe? Anyway, I'm yeah. going to finish Stony Peace Lab's comment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the <laughs> band, the former Soft White Underbelly, were so loud that a noise complaint was called in from a mile away. I left as the police were arriving. By the way, one of them still owes me $3. <laughs> well, at least he knows what they're named now. <laughs> I hope Stony Peace Lab gets his three dollars yeah. someday. Yeah, probably not. Uh, why don't we just end with a couple more of our favorites? We of should these. we should read Vinny's letter because I want to respond to him. <laughs> okay, this is from a user named Vinny Stafford. Yeah. Okay, interesting article, but I think you should have done a little more research in regards to Kiss. Wicked Lester, which is uh, their original name. Uh, supposedly. Yeah. I agree is a horrible name for a band. However, it was the band Simmons and Stanley were in prior to forming KISS. It was not the original band name. Well, I can defend this. I personally wrote the entry about KISS, and in the entry, it, I explain it was a different band, but if it's Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, and they were together in that group, and they started a brand new group as soon as it ended, and many of the Wicked Lester demos have been released on Kiss box sets. It's the proto-history of Kiss, and, and to me that counts as the original name to All some right. degree I, enough I, to be I, I think list. we can accept that. Yes. I mean, considering that Stanley and Simmons are now touring with two guys who are not yet Ace Frehley and Peter Chris, and right. they're still Kiss. Yes, they, they could right. be Kiss when they were Rick and Lester, too. All right. I'm, I'm just going to name two more uh, band names, which I think unequivocally they were right to toss aside. Okay, the, uh, one of them was uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, who were originally the Salty Peppers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which that's just, no there's good. There's nothing good that, about that. Yeah, that's not good. And then finally, I, I would have put this one, uh, number one, uh, the Doobie Brothers. Again, yeah, the Doobie Brothers, not 
maybe not the best name, but it's it's you know it, it rolls off the tongue. Their original name was Pud, <laughs> yeah, oh. which is just idea, yeah, just nothing Horrible. good about yeah, that. Yeah, it's particularly bad. All right, well, well, Andy, thanks for uh, sticking around for the reader mail segment. Of course. And that's going to be it for Rolling Stone Music Now today. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. 